0: This week on The Futurists, Dean Takahashi. No, the metaverse hasn't been tried yet. It's, it's one of those things where if you cross over certain technology thresholds, then it becomes possible. And so what I would look forward to is having the equivalent of the Star Trek holodeck where you could right, instantly right. just like that, you know, change from one world to another or have a, a world generated uh, that uh, to me looks like reality.
1: Welcome back to The Futurists, the show where we talk to the people who are inventing, discovering and writing about the future. And this week, we're going to look into the future of games with a good friend, a longtime friend and colleague of mine. But before we do that, Brett, welcome to the show. Good to see you. You're traveling, man. Where are you coming from this week, Yeah, I'm
2: on the road. I'm in Budapest, Hungary, sitting on the Danube
1: River right now. So that's pretty cool. That sounds pretty nice. And uh, I would imagine it's pretty chilly there at this time of year. Yeah. So it was freezing, you know, it was like uh, in
2: in US terms, like 32, 33 degrees, but, um, you know, one degree Celsius. So I had to go out and buy myself a jacket because coming from Bangkok, I wasn't wasn't really prepared.
1: Not ready for the cold (laughs) weather. Uh, It's a shock to the system when you come from a place that's typically 85 degrees. Well, Absolutely. we should probably start off with some news. Uh, you got a couple of news items for us this week. Ready for the news from the future. So two that I picked up on is um, first is a
2: report that came out on January 23rd. So, just last week, um, you know, as per time of the recording, um, from ITIF, which is the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, and it's got a really controversial title, this report: "Wake Up, America." China <laughs> is overtaking the United States in innovation uh, capacity. And, you know, we hear it often, um, you know, Americans talking about that that China just copies the US. Um, but the type of innovation that is is happening in in um, China is, it, in some, res- some respects, sort of infrastructure innovation and, and so forth, not necessarily new products to market, but core innovation in an economy level. So by 2020, China's Innovation and advanced industry capabilities increased to roughly seventy-five percent of the US, um, but they are set to overtake the US over the next couple of years. And as we've talked about, um, you know, particularly in respect to things like patents and uh, other things, um, you know, they've made um, substantial progress. But in terms of innovation indicators um, or innovation capacity, um, this report uh, clearly shows that uh, um, you know China is going to surpass the U.S., and this comes back to the conversation we've had on the show numerous times. The other piece of news is um, from a professor of genetics and a co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center of Biology and Aging Research at the Harvard Medical School. This is a 13-year study that um, is being conducted at Harvard uh, Harvard uh, Medical School by Dr. David Sinclair and his colleagues, and after the 13 years, they've really discovered a, a key factor in aging. You know we had uh, of course Aubrey de Grey on the show a couple yeah. of weeks ago um talking about um cell senescence and um you know uh you know the zombie cells and all of those things but it turns out um it's the loss of epigenetic information um a, a passing from you know, cell cells to new cells that really creates this deterioration in all of these areas of aging that we talk about, such as telomere lengths and cell cell reproduction errors and the zombie cells and so forth. And that by improving that transmission of uh, DNA epigenetic information from one cell to the other, we can reverse aging. So they've been able to dial up and dial down, um, you know, cellular aging. It's a really, it's a massive, um, uh, you know. A piece of advanced research in, in respect to overall aging that's gonna it's taking us in a in a particular direction in terms of reversing aging. So you yeah, know, I um, mean Aubrey de Gray was talking about 2036 as a, a sort of escape velocity, but it, it may be that you know this this is uh, represent a real milestone earlier than that. Well,
1: wow, that's pretty good progress. It makes good sense, right? As cells copy each other, we know that there is there are defects, right? The telomeres break and wear out and so forth. Uh, so the idea that that you can uh, make a better copy, more accurate copy, should suggest exactly. that it probably uh, extend lifespan. Although that sounds easy, the way I say it, I'm sure it's quite a challenge. Uh, I've got one piece for you today, one news item that I sure. caught my eye this week, which I thought was kind of an interesting and funny story. It's um, it's about food. It's about the future of food, and it follows some of the conversations we've recently had. Um, but this time, it's about making food from air. So it turns out that there's a, a, um, a fungal microbe that was discovered by NASA-funded scientists in Yellowstone Park. It was found in an acidic hot spring in Yellowstone. And um, this particular fungus can process air to yield a protein. Uh, that might not sound particularly appealing, but apparently there are a couple of companies, Nature's Find and another firm in Finland called Solar Foods. And they're, they've harnessed this particular uh, fungus to generate protein. And it comes in the form of uh, a cream cheese, get that a fungal cream cheese that -hmm. some people compare to mascarpone. So it's like, oh, that sounds delicious, maybe. Um, Or a hazelnut praline mousse. That sounds like it could be a good dessert. Wow. And many other forms, of course. So it's a protein. You can do it. Why that's important for the future is uh, that about half of earth's arable land is already cultivated. And I was surprised to learn that about a third of human human caused uh, g- greenhouse gases are coming from the agricultural sector. And if you think about uh, raising animals and so forth for for food, uh, there's a that's a big source of greenhouse cow, gas.
2: Cow farts, basically.
1: Yeah, that's really it. So we're uh, we're going to switch okay. at some point to fungal produced food generated from air, and that'll spare us the cow farts. Great. On that note. Let's get into the show this week. We, we should get someone for...
2: to talk about the future of mushrooms. You know, the
1: mycelial network oh, and we stuff. Should we this. should get into that. We yeah. should do this. But, but All meanwhile, right, let's, I, I stopped you. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not upcut the introduction of our guest here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to bring on our guest, old friend of mine, Dean Takahashi, and Dean is the principal writer for GamesBeat, which is part of VentureBeat, and he's also the organizer of the GamesBeat uh, conferences and events. And he's been covering the game sector for sheesh, I don't know, thirty years, Dean. Mm-hmm. What a great pleasure to have you on the futurist. Thanks for joining us this
0: Woo-hoo! week. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, We're excited
1: uh, to have uh, you here. Uh, you know, I've been wanting to have a show on the future of games for a heck of a long time, mm-hmm. and I can't think of a better person to talk about that since you've got such a long track record. Uh, you and I crashed into each other, I think, back in the day, early days of mobile games, uh, mm-hmm. when people would say to me games on phones suck. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, that's actually kind of true. And it was for a mighty long time, but now games is the biggest platform, you know, worldwide. It's much bigger than uh, PlayStations or PCs. So it's a, uh, the the world of games evolves rapidly. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the state of the game industry today. Well, you're right that uh, mobile games is
0: the biggest segment uh, within gaming. Now it's it's more than half of the, the market. Uh, PC and console games are still going strong, but the, they don't engage nearly as many people. And uh, people on on the run really um, uh, have have time for mobile gaming. And so uh, it's exploded. The, the business model of free to play uh, really helped uh, that happen. And um, I, I think that uh, if there is any sort of uh, uh slowdown in in gaming now um, it has to do a bit with um you know whether uh people playing those mobile games are really dedicated players or not and the people yeah. who are spending time on pc games and console games um, they are extremely dedicated and they're they're playing um uh, this form of entertainment uh you know far more than any other kind of uh of uh, diversion um, Uh, But, uh, but mobile gamers, um, you know, they, they're, a bit more sensitive to, to the times. And so like a recessionary environment, uh, they may not play as much. Um, they may sort of go off and do other things, uh, especially as uh, sort of we're in a post-pandemic phase, I think, and, now, and now so, for the, yeah.
1: For the benefit yeah. of our audience, let me clarify a couple of things because you mentioned mm-hmm. two things that I wanna make sure people understand. The first mm-hmm. one's the distinction between core gamers and casual gamers. And that's the mm-hmm. distinction you're talking about. We talk about people playing on a phone. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's serious about playing games is probably gonna have a gaming rig at home uh, that's set up with the proper chair and so forth like my friend Brett who went mm-hmm. back when he's in home base mm-hmm. is a dedicated oh, gamer.
2: I'm a serious gamer
1: dude. That's I've right. got
2: like a a $8000 gaming PC, massive nice. widescreen. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, I'm like, like a I've true been a gamer geek. for uh, you know I've been a gamer since uh, com- PC-based gamers, and so is right. the thing.
1: And then there's the casual gamers, and that's the folks who play on on their phones, and they're not necessarily going to buy dedicated equipment, uh, but they play on the device they happen to have. And these days, mobile phones are pretty good. You know, the power mm-hmm. of that phone keeps improving, so it's basically a supercomputer in your pocket, and it's connected to a fairly fast network. So the things that might have previously been a bottleneck that made mobile games pretty terrible back in the day. Those problems have been solved. And so now we have a pretty decent game machine in our pocket. That's a field that's been absolutely booming with downloadable apps for the last 10 years. And there's a lot of innovation there. One of the innovations you mentioned is free to play. Free to play is where you get the game for free and you decide when to pay. That's a kind of a novel concept. When I started in the games industry, we sold shrink wrap boxes with shiny discs inside of them. And there mm-hmm. we charge you a stiff 45 bucks up front. If you didn't like the game, it was just like a movie theater, like tough luck, Charlie, you bought the box. You, you bought the bought the game, you opened the box, you can't bring it back. Um, these days, players get to download the game and play as much as they like. And it is kind of nuts. You can play 55 levels of Candy Crush before you pay, mm-hmm. but woe to you if you pay, because the minute you pay that game changes. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about Free to Play, because I know it's controversial. Some game designers dislike it intensely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the
0: the the notion of free to play, more, like more than a decade ago, you know, it started with Nexon um, uh, trying to figure out a way to get around the problem of uh, piracy in the game industry. Uh, everybody was, especially in Asia, you know, they're they were just really copying games and, and never paying for them. Um, but they they did figure out that uh, if if you're delivering value for people, let them try it out for free. They get uh, they get addicted to it, and then they just uh, say, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna uh, pay for something in this game that I'm enjoying so much." And you know, it might be five bucks, but it, it might be a thousand bucks as well. There was no cap on how much. Could be paid, and so the people who who spent this money and played a whole lot, they became what were called whales. And uh, uh, you know, maybe even just two percent of the players were were doing this, deciding to pay, uh, but they they could basically finance you know the the rest of the community uh, getting the game for free uh, because uh, they there was no there's no cap on how much uh, these people could. Could pay uh, so definitely uh you know uh created a new alternative uh point of entry into games and then once you once you go through that sort of uh that looking glass, <laughs> you're, you're, ne- you're never going back. And so then your your gaming habits just uh, just keep on growing at, at that point. Um, but the business so, model
1: attracted new players for sure, but it also <laughs> changed the way we design games because it, it it caused game designers yeah. to design very hooky, sticky games Robot that would get you addicted fast. And, stuff with, yeah. and, <laughs> and so the nature of the games themselves began to change. In some respects, they became more like slot machines. You know, like it felt like free gambling. <laughs> Yeah, uh, until you put money in in which case that it felt very much like real gambling except you don't get a cash prize back you just spend the money it's like it's like the world's worst casino yeah it definitely veered off into things like loot boxes and uh, yeah. that
0: became a sort of the dark side of uh, of the game industry and uh it tell us about loot boxes a lot of, yeah, it generates a lot of money yeah. and loot boxes you know you you pay for something but you don't know what's inside and yeah. you're trying to get you know like a super special sword or something like that but uh uh it almost does become like a slot machine as far as your chances of getting that.
1: Uh, or like a scratch-off lottery ticket, you know, where you uh, mm-hmm. you purchase the thing and then you open it to find out what's inside. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in some countries, uh, those those loot boxes have been deemed a kind of lottery, right? They've been banned in, in uh, Japan and I think someplace in Europe as well. Yeah, yeah. Illegal, like uh, Belgium, for example. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely right. considered illegal gambling sometimes. So the point is there that uh, we tend to think of games as being kind of constant or we Mm -hmm. one tends to think of games as um, being persistent. And it's Mm -hmm. certainly true. You know, games like chess have been around for centuries and haven't evolved and they're still very appealing. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the world of uh, of video games, there's just tremendous amounts of change. I'd say of all the media types, games is the one that changes the most. It's the most uh, influenced by the technology. It's the most influenced by the network because gamers require you know, really milliseconds uh, response times in order for the game to be plausible. It's also where the developers, uh, the people who create the games are willing to test out technology. I wouldn't say that that's true of other kinds of entertainment. Uh, you know, One could say musicians use technology and they do, they experiment with it. Uh, the motion picture business tend, tends to be technology resistant until there's like a proven breakthrough that'll give them an advantage. But in the game industry, you've got coders that are testing systems that often aren't even documented. You know, they're at the very cutting mm-hmm. edge of the technology. Mm-hmm. I consider them to be, I consider game developers like the test pilots for new technology. That's one of the reasons why it's such an interesting subject.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, there's, you know, different uh, branches of
0: of innovation in games right now that are pushing into things like cloud gaming and cloud yeah. cloud technology and uh, there's VR of course, and, uh, uh, blockchain, uh, games, uh, and I want to ask about all I mean, those, first, I want to ask about all those, well, right? you know,
1: so, you know, everybody says that cloud gaming is the next big thing, although it's not so clear to me that that's the case. And certainly Google proved that it's easy to screw up, uh, and, and okay. kind of retreat with your towel between your legs, idea, but apparently Microsoft you know. is making a go of it and they're doing well. Tell us a little bit about cloud gaming. So cloud gaming basically, uh, will, uh, put the computing power and the graphics
0: uh, uh, processing into uh, a data center in the cloud. And uh, you access that uh, via the internet uh, for your game device, and uh, you can basically, you know, enhance uh, the processing power that you have available to you enormously, uh, just just through the form of video that you download into a device and you you upload download and uh, it feels like um, all of the interaction is happening right there on your device. When in fact,
1: um, you know, a lot of the processing is happening in the uh, a data center that's far away. So does, does that mean you could play a game like a really high-powered game on a like a basic Android Android tablet? Is that the idea? You're streaming the game down from a data center. Yeah,
0: yeah. So then it doesn't matter how powerful your own particular device is, uh, and you can play a very high-end game uh, like, say, Red Dead Redemption Two. You can you can play it on uh, a laptop that uh, basically has very little graphics uh, power, or um, a smartphone. Um, so in theory, that should GPU.
1: expand the market of gamers. Is that what's happening? Is it are new people who don't have like in NVIDIA laptops? Are they signing up? Well, there's there's innovations that go along with this. And for example, um, a company called
0: HoloRide is now enabling you to do virtual reality games uh, on a headset in the car. And uh and you know, they're they would access uh technology like uh, the data in the car that tells you that the car is turning, and it'll it'll turn the simulation that you're seeing in the direction that the car is turning, so you don't oh, get as wow. seasick as you normally might with that wow. kind of. Um, uh, cool. most experience right so um I,
2: I do think you know the whole Edge Computing and 5G stuff is, is mm-hmm. sort of taking us this way as well as it, mm-hmm. you know if we can have if we can have GPU storage and obviously very low latency uh, video as a result of sort of 5G it, it is a game changer now mm-hmm. um you know th- there's questions about um you know standards around 5G of course the U.S standard differing from um you know a lot of the rest of the world but you know we are Increasingly relying on cloud, and, and clearly, as we go for more compute power, um, you know, the other angle with the cloud, uh, you know, is going to be energy management. You know, uh, a sustainable compute power is going to be a feature of of the cloud stuff that you don't get from sort of the large on prem. But um, you know, I, I, like you know, look at some of the gaming systems that we've already got, like Roblox and Minecraft and stuff like this. These these are essentially cloud native platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Roblox is enormously um, popular now. It's uh, it's crossed uh, well into uh, nearly 60 million people playing it daily. Uh, and, that's astounding. Uh, yeah. and That's
1: astounding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my is, kids, that, is Roblox like, all
2: kids? My kids get their, their allowance on Roblox. Well, <laughs> the two youngest do, the 10 and the 13-year-old. That's that's mm-hmm. the, That's how they've chosen to get their allowance.
0: They're also uh, trying to be a bit like Disney and, and be multi generational, right? And uh, they're trying to age up the content so that uh, more than just kids will be uh, spending their time inside Roblox. It's like a it's like a very similar strategy to to Disney, right? Well, in in the
1: well, in the second half of the show, we'll talk a little bit about the direction that games like Ro- Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft might be going in the future. Um, but first we have to take a break. And so what we always do before we take a break is that my friend Brett is going to fire up some, uh, rapid questions for you. And your job is to give quick answers to them. So this is a chance for our audience to get to know you a little bit more, okay? Get to know, uh, how you got started, how you got interested in this stuff over to you, Brett. Okay.
2: This is the quick fire lightning round. What was the first game you remember playing? Pong. I
0: played it in a, a tennis uh, court lounge uh, in the Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas when I was on vacation.
2: Was it an arcade-based game?
0: Uh, it was
2: one of those tabletop
0: uh, uh, games. Oh, yeah. Uh
2: yeah, yeah, was cool. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you think is the game that has most changed the gaming industry?
0: Uh, I would point to either Fortnite or Roblox, uh, you know, Fortnite right. v- became very interesting because it forced the industry to embrace cl- crossplay, Uh, and, uh, and so like a, Person on a Sony device uh, could could play with someone uh, with Nintendo. Could play with someone on a mobile phone. Uh, so that was important. But Roblox also really pioneered um, user generated generated content, and that seems like uh, a very viable path into into the future.
2: Uh, now um, this this could go either way, but you know, uh, can you give me the name of a futurist, an entrepreneur, or a game developer that has uh... It influenced you personally, and why? I would say uh,
0: uh, Tim Sweeney. Uh, I mm. used to interview Tim Sweeney uh, quite often in the days when the Xbox was launching, more than you know, twenty years ago. And he's still the CEO of Epic Games and uh, pioneering, uh, you know, three uh, D graphics in, in a very big way. And his company is uh, is the maker of Fortnite, uh, and Um, He was the one who just um, probably five years ago started talking a lot about the metaverse. And uh, I was... Uh, Interviewing him, and I said, "Well, how you know how how soon do you think we can do the metaverse? Because I I don't believe we're ever going to get there (laughs) to something like the Star Trek holodeck." And uh, and he said, "I think it'd be just a few years." And uh, and it sort of woke me up, and you know, it it reminded me of the Neil Stevenson book uh, from nineteen ninety two, Snow Crash. Exactly. You know, and I I thought these things were not going to come to pass uh, very soon uh, because of just you know. The, the, the idea that you can be so immersed in, a, in a, a space that it feels like it's reality, it just didn't seem like we had that that kind of computing power. But, uh, you know, here's Tim Sweeney, one of the world's, you know, greatest uh, graphics gurus uh, saying that this is going to be possible. And I, I think maybe, you know, the the sort of secret of that is really what kind of metaverse are we going to get and how soon is that going right. to
2: so. Well, that was sort of my next question is, is there someone that you think has predicted the future of gaming accurately?
0: Well, uh, I mean, I, Tim is is one, for example, uh, but I, I think also Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA has also been yep. very inspiring yep. as well. He, he keeps saying that uh, science fiction is becoming reality and uh, uh, that uh, the notion that we could make a breakthrough in one area uh, could cascade a number of breakthroughs in other areas and and that started with uh, deep learning neural networks and ai uh, actually working for the first time you know 10 years ago or so mm. uh, and uh, when you get breakthroughs like that then they do uh, uh, affect almost every kind of industry like AI has pretty much proliferated through the tech industry and I saw that at the, the recent CES 2023 show
2: all right well let's talk about that after the break I'm a bit of a Gabe Newell fan myself but that's because I was heavily influenced by you know mm-hmm. half-life as a as a first-person shooter but um, all right well listen you're listening to the futurists we have uh, uh, Dean Takahashi as our uh, guest this week we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and The Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate Podcast, Tech on Reg. Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to Provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show.
1: Okay, we're back. It's the second half of the show. It is The Futurists with my friend, Brett King, me, Rob hey, hey. Kersick and our guest, Dean Takahashi of GamesBeat. Hey Dean, we're, we're just getting into the good stuff now. Uh, so of course there's all these topics we wanna to jump into, things about the metaverse, the use of artificial intelligence, the idea of persistent world games that might start to extend into the world through things like augmented reality or mixed reality. Mm-hmm. So um, let's take these concepts one by one and break them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of hype at CES this year about gear. And in particular, there were a couple of new devices that showed up, uh, new uh, head-mounted displays, Mm for augmented reality or for virtual reality. And the whole world seems to be breathlessly waiting for this Apple announcement that keeps getting pushed further and further down into the future. Uh, Talk about the futurists. Uh, That is a topic that keeps coming up on this show. Can you give us a little perspective about what you learned at Mm -hmm. CES this year, the Consumer Electronics Show, that gigantic showcase of electronic gizmos? Yeah, uh, there was uh, interesting developments with uh, virtual reality for sure. Uh,
0: HTC showed off a, a new headset. Uh, they're charging $1,100 for it, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it's oriented uh, towards uh, consumer enthusiasts who uh, really love VR environments. Uh, and Are there then any? the PlayStation VR 2 uh, also uh, made its debut uh, at, uh, at CES, and uh, it's uh, going to be shipping in February as well. And um, you know, it's it's it is targeted uh, for much more serious gamers, um, and it is priced at five hundred and fifty dollars, right? So mm-hmm. half the price of the of the HTC Vive, and Meta, of course, came out with uh, their MetaQuest Pro for for enterprises that uh, uh, costs about fifteen hundred dollars. Then uh, you have uh, other players uh, that were at uh, CES as well, like uh, Magic Leap, which is selling a thirty-three hundred dollars uh, mixed reality uh, glasses, um, and, uh, and they're targeting that at uh, enterprises uh, where you might want to, you know, uh, use it to train uh, uh, an associate walking down a, an aisle uh, where they could see. Uh, different descriptions of the things they're looking at uh, popping up in their their AR uh,
1: headsets for thirty so, three hundred dollars. So. You think that that's a good deal to train a new associate in a grocery store?
0: Uh, You know, training costs, uh, for some reason, are extremely high, right? Mm. And there aren't enough people to do that training. And so um, uh, this is one of the great um, use cases uh, for the early technology that, you know, it comes out at a very high price. Enterprises can afford it because they're actually
1: saving tens of thousands of dollars a year uh, in training costs. At least that's the argument that they're using to sell it at CES. That's
2: right. It's a shame that Magic Leap hasn't done more. You know, because, um, you know, obviously they have some pretty special tech, but I, I think the gap is closing on some uh, of some, some of that tech, you know, like. There's um, a
1: really big problem with AR, though. The big problem with AR that everyone keeps running into is that the sun is really bright mm-hmm. and yeah. the displays aren't and you can't defeat the sun. Uh, that was one of the major issues, but there were a bunch at Magic Leap. That was a company. that was I mean, a, the interesting well, ab- advance about. The Magic
0: Leap uh, two headset is that you can use it outdoors as well, and so, uh, but it's you know it it is a challenge. It's a problem that just gets in the way of uh, the technology moving really fast for sure. Yeah. And well, Apple point, has
2: denied uh, the the AR launch. Right? They're launching their mixed reality yeah. headset this year, but they've said they're they're putting off the augmented reality glasses for a while.
1: Yeah, it's the same problem. The other issue is that this is where you really need 5G. You know, when we think of 5G, most people think of it as fast, more bandwidth, right? Or faster bandwidth. And that's true. And that's actually the way we've implemented it in the United States. But as you mentioned in the beginning, Brett, there's a lot of different approaches to how you roll out 5G because it's a very complex technology. Uh, and it enables the network operator to allocate bandwidth uh, in many different ways. One of the ways to do it is to create a low latency network, which means that you could deliver refresh on a screen in the form of milliseconds. really important for gaming, yeah. It's essential for AR because if you, as you turn your head, you have to redraw the screen dozens of times to make sure that it matches. If there's any lag, any delay whatsoever, it completely destroys the illusion. And therefore, it makes AR impossible to launch as a viable product. So that's one of the brick walls. That the headset manufacturers have run into is that we simply don't have a network today in the U.S. that would support it. That may be different elsewhere in the world, where they're implementing uh, they're implementing five G networks with much higher teledensity density and therefore possibly much more much lower latency. And, and on a different spectrum, right? Uh, well, that's another factor in it. But but, it, but let's before we veer off into the land of uh, of telecommunications standards, let's get back to CES. So, what else <laughs> did you see at CES that that tickled your fancy? but well, there
0: definitely was a lot of influence from generative ai um which uh, has sort of you know taken the the whole uh, tech world by by storm uh, even google is worried about uh the effect this might have on uh people using search right
1: you're talking about things uh, like generative pre-trained transformers what we know as gpt3 or now chat gpt mm-hmm. yeah and uh i uh, wrote
0: about a, a startup today that uh, came out of uh, CES uh, announcements uh, they're they're getting their um their app onto uh LG TVs uh because LG wants to position itself as a, a metaverse leader as well and uh, what what this does is it uh it lets you just engage with an app um, it's coming in via the cloud uh into the TV and then you just uh, Type in a text prompt, and then it generates a world. A world using what you typed in. Like if you, I want a game. I want a multiplayer game with chickens fighting each other. Um, okay. It'll it'll generate that. Is it any good? <laughs> it, does it look good? or Is minutes, it terrible? Right? Yeah, it could be terrible for sure, <laughs> uh, and it could be disposable, right? Uh, but the. The thing that the company Oxuman and uh, its Oxu World uh, app um, they're hoping for is that uh, is that the 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 ability for users to create their own games using their own imagination is going to be the hook, right? And that. Um, oh, I like buy that. Yeah, I, I yeah, think yeah, that that's a yeah. big
1: factor. Uh, and I think when we talk about metaverse, we should we should bear in mind that everybody will be a creator in the metaverse. Everybody will create some kind of art. So that's where these uh, automated systems, these AI generative systems, can be quite powerful. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean what they what they do is they enable people who are
0: lay people, really ordinary people who don't know how to code, yeah. uh, to tap into something like generative AI to um, you know create. Vast amounts of content uh, that they could never otherwise uh, create, and so um, that's that's something that could really sort of um, kickstart uh, user-generated content. Uh, yeah,
1: we're gonna be we're gonna be dealing with a flood of user-generated AI-generated content uh, in the very near future. You know, everything from newsletters and social media posts to really bad art. Some people make great stuff with it. It's just super mm-hmm. impressive to see the people who've got the skills and prompt craft generating mm-hmm. really, really good looking art or really interesting new uh writing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is frankly average, you know, like that's the whole point, is it generates kind of the mean. Uh so well, we're gonna be flooded uh, with mediocre I... content.
2: So so Dean, um, you know, I wanna I wanna talk to you about sort of general trends here. You know, you you do have things like Fortnite, which is more community-based. But, you know, if we look at the big ticket games, the Call of Duties and and Mm -hmm. things like this, these games that are you know, basically produce like Hollywood blockbusters, and sort of you know, in terms of budgets and in terms of revenue that's produced by them, you know, tend to be very similar. Even you know, they they're you know higher returns than than uh, you know Hollywood movies. They tend to be much more story driven. You know, mm-hmm. you you know, you're immer- immersed in these storytelling experiences. So, um, you know, it, it, do you think that that's, that the sort of world is going to be split between these? action you know engagement models versus storytelling um you know and w- where does that put us in terms of the metaverse do we sort of see you know playable movies coming in the future mm-hmm. that you know um that you can play a character like think of what that what's happened with the last of us recently you mm-hmm. know amazing yeah. new TV series um you know the, the lines are blurring between games and and storytelling in in, in that way where, where do you think this is taking us
0: I think we're going to have some very strong genres uh, within gaming that are going in very different directions, like user-generated content is only going to get stronger, and the storytelling really isn't there, but it's it's your story, and that's what's appealing to uh, so many people, uh, whereas the really high-end movie-like uh, storytelling like you see in The Last of Us, um, uh, you know, we've gotten to an interesting stage where video games can do that, and uh, they can be the lead uh, storytelling um, uh, concept uh, that can go across a lot of different media. Uh, and, you know, you you can have a lot of games now sort of be mined as the sources for um, the biggest movies coming out of Hollywood. And so like The Last of Us uh, HBO series is really a, a great example of that. And What's interesting now is that these are becoming the same ecosystem. Like, you know, game engines are being used uh, to make games, but also to be, you know, to make movies and TV shows like The Mandalorian uh, was made with the Unreal Engine, for example, right? And so they're becoming one ecosystem. And and what that means is then that it's, it's so much easier for them to traverse back and forth. Right. And that that means that people like the directors of these shows they're gamers now, right? And they they know how to respectfully treat the source material, so they don't offend the gamers with the, so true. the craziest kind of movie antics, right? Uh, so uh, I think um, that's that's definitely a trend that's only going to get stronger, and it's going to strengthen gaming culture uh, in the mainstream, right? It's it's going to mean that uh, everybody's going to know uh, what the popular games are because they they embrace the popular shows. And so people who aren't gamers, they become aware of things like League of Legends and Arcane uh, because of uh, a great Netflix television show. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the success of those shows is clearly going to turn motion, the, the motion picture industry is going to start to look at games as uh, the place where the concepts are developed you know mm-hmm. to make a successful film and even a streaming series now you need to have a built in audience that's why we see so much franchise work yeah, and so exactly. many things that are derived from famous old science fiction and fantasy stories uh that have been around for years and years but we've we kind of um, mined that out that vein has been mm-hmm. mined out and so now they're looking for new franchises mm-hmm. and the gaming industry does that partly it's because persistent games uh, games mm-hmm. like Fortnite and Roblox and Minecraft games that are always there you know they're always available you can play them as long as you You can play until you drop and there'll still be players out there continuing to play on after you go to bed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those game worlds now attract tens of millions of people uh, Mm -hmm. worldwide. And so they're well understood as a brand. But weirdly, they're still sort of in this uh, game industry zone, Mm -hmm. which is considered niche by mainstream media. I find that really weird that that persists, that that perception Mm -hmm. of games is kind of like a niche pursuit when, yeah, it's really a misperception. Uh, and yeah. those, those communities are so. Three billion so people tight. playing games.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, and those yeah. communities are so super tight. You know, I play yeah. this game called Rust. I don't know if you know it, Dean, but um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a generated generated world. You play against a community, um, you know, and the it, the community is so involved in this stuff. You know, they it, eat, live, breathe this, this stuff. So you've got very passionate
1: um, audiences as well behind these games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's actually the key to Microsoft's strategy. So, you know, one of the big things that's happened in the business of games is that game companies are getting rolled up. Game studios are getting acquired by mega game companies, uh, notably Tencent, the Chinese company, is the biggest game company in the world right now. In response to that, Microsoft's been buying up game companies and their approach to me is quite interesting. I'd be happy to hear your perspective on it, Dean. What mm-hmm. I'm interested in is that Microsoft is buying game franchises that have really deep rooted communities to the point mm-hmm. that Brett was just making. So games like Elder Scrolls that have been around for a zillion years, but they have this community of passionate mm-hmm. fans. And some people speculate that that's Microsoft's approach to the metaverse, that they're going to build the metaverse one franchise at a time, mm-hmm. starting with communities. They're not focusing on tech. They're not focusing on any kind of like gimmick or play technique or something. What they're focused on is where are the people who mm-hmm. are going to contribute to building these worlds and sustaining these franchises I think that's quite a unique, unique approach. What's, what's your take on that? What's your take on Microsoft as a game uh, industry roll-up? Well, I think I think a lot of
0: these big companies uh, definitely want to uh, control the future, right? And they the, um, still say that they support openness, right? And uh, and so they're going to push uh, for as much proprietary uh, technology leadership as as they can, but uh, they can also embrace uh, a more open uh, path. And it, an example is Microsoft is in the process of buying Activision Blizzard, uh, uh, the biggest standalone video, video yep. game company in yep. the US and um, you know, they're getting Call of Duty and what they could do uh, once they get so many of these franchises uh, is set up something like Disneyland as a walled garden, right? There's a, there is a wall around Disneyland, right? Uh, and uh you could have call of duty land where players could go and just spend all their time and uh, just do nothing but that uh and you could have halo land you could have starfield land all all these different franchises uh make up this Disneyland and and you can get in for one low price right and um that's going to be very competitive against anybody who's trying to sell you a standalone game and uh i i think um you know the game companies, uh, they they have the engagement, like once you get into something like a metaverse, you're going to want to do things there. And uh, the most engaging thing to do is, is to play games. And I think, um, you know, Jason Rubin from Meta, he, he had a, a great quote that, um, you know, if you're going to build the metaverse, it's going to have a ton of 3D content, and you're going to need a game engine to build that. And the people who know how to use game engines are game developers. And so it follows that game developers are going to lead the way into uh, a metaverse. Uh, and and yet I, I see very interesting things happening across um, all of industry um, with uh, the technologies like uh, AI uh, game development tools are spreading uh, the yeah. ability to create 3D graphics uh, into every industry. And you have NVIDIA pushing the Omniverse tools and you can use those to uh, create digital assets and reuse them across different um, uh, projects. And, uh, you know, that kind of tool is really necessary uh, to create an interoperable set of worlds or interoperable um, uh, games um, where you uh, can use uh, one thing in a game uh, maybe you're like using your blockchain technology, yeah, right? The blockchain. <laughs> but use one thing in game and then take it to another game because you already bought and you own it, and and right. that ownership can be verified through blockchain. And so once these things um, all uh, proliferate, then you you can en- undertake some very interesting gigantic projects. Like Nvidia wants to use Omniverse to create a digital twin of the Earth and have it be accurate on a meter level scale, so that they right. can. Uh, use all the supercomputers of the world, which use NVIDIA graphics chips, right, um, to to actually uh, do an, an analysis on that digital twin and predict climate change for decades to come. Like if you, if you can do that, wow. you basically built a digital twin of the Earth and you get the metaverse for free, right? So once you built that thing, um, everybody else can reuse it in yeah. their own ways. Um there's a there's a creator out there named Rendon Green, who's kind of chomping at the bit to get a hold of this technology. He's the creator of unknowns Battlegrounds, PUBG, the first PUBG, really yeah. successful battle royale game in gaming. And uh, PUBG had sold more than 90 million units, right? And um, this made uh, Brendan uh, uh, quite wealthy and able to finance a new sort of long-term project. And what he wants to do is basically create a world, right? Like a digital twin of the earth, uh, and just set players loose in it and let them create their own games with it and um he would welcome other visitors from other worlds into this uh into this game world uh but you know at at the entrance to the world he's basically going to use um ai or generative ai uh, to convert whatever they have into what they can use inside his world right and so um, you wouldn't have a fantasy player showing up as a knight uh in shining armor into a call of duty world, right?
1: So <laughs> you would oh, so you like would an avatar translate. translator or although, yeah, although trans- that's, translator. But,
2: but that was you know that's a bit of the concept behind Oasis, mm-hmm. you know, ready player one is that you do yeah. you could build these uh persistent characters that could cross mm-hmm. between worlds and yes. you know you could you could have your you know you, it's it's your ability to have your really own flavor in, in terms of building your persona in the game world. World, or the metaverse world i think that's that's part of um you know the personalization of the game experience for individuals is is being able to craft that that stuff out you know and and look you know a lot of these games the fortnites the you know rust um you know minecraft and so forth you know you're often um, buying um, skins or you're buying um, you know, tool sets to give you advancements so almost like the old Dungeons and Dragons
1: days in terms but you're of You're buying stuff that stays in that game inside of that right. world so it's like a closed economy and, um, yeah, it is with, closed with some, loop,
2: but if you could make that transferable and you could yes, have that, so yeah, that, that's, that, that's sort that, of
1: the yeah. holy grail. And when people talk about interoperability, that's what they're referring to. It's a clunky word. It's not a great word, but mm-hmm. the notion is that if I buy, you know, something that's useful or cool in one world or one game world, I should be able to bring that stuff with me because I'm the one who bought it. It belongs to me. That's yeah, not the that's way it works. That's, why that's why a lot of
0: people also think that you know blockchain technology is is going to be a key here, and that uh, it yeah. can sort of certify your digital ownership of something. But, and but it can he, also he, and I'm let a skeptic. You, I'm a huge yeah, skeptic because but it can also, I mean, the point being that. It can also let you get around the platform walls, the wall. Yeah, garden, no, I, I get
1: right? the vision. I totally get the vision, but uh, anybody who's designed a game before, and I've designed a bunch, will know that every, every implement like that, every item that's useful or stylish in a world has a certain point value inside of an RPG system that's pertinent to that particular game. You can't just rip that element out. You always hear this from people. You don't mm-hmm. know what they're talking about. They'll say, oh, you can buy us a, a magic sword in one game and use it in another. No, you can't. There's no mm-hmm. such thing. There's no There's no way to transfer that across.
0: But, really, is, talking about...
1: but we have something we never had before.
0: We have generative AI. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the idea that you're proposing is that now games uh, like the one that Brendan Green's thinking about building this sort of planetary game uh, would have some sort of AI translator. So something like uh, a mid-journey at the mm-hmm. entrance of the game. So you bring all your inventory, Mm-hmm. and it says okay in this world there's a there's an equivalent it's almost like you know the 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 place you used to go to do a money exchange when you went from one european country to another you'd you change your deutschmarks into francs or rubles or whatever this mm-hmm. will change your uh, your elements from one game into useful items in another game that makes sense to me. I could see that. I don't know if people would agree with the arbitrary, uh, the the the, the, the switching price there, but nevertheless, that, that makes sense. You can like trade in your gear, mm-hmm. uh, because right now people are doing it illegally, right? They create all, uh, exchanges outside of the games where they can yeah. transfer characters and so forth.
0: I mean, even Big worse, business.
1: uh, e- even worse for gamers, you know,
0: when, when these games uh run out of steam and they shut down. Then their investment
1: of 10 years into a character is something just yeah. disappears. It's right? gone. That's right. That's a total waste. Uh hey, well, wow. well, that they, was a pretty sweeping answer you gave us a minute ago. You managed to cover things like VR, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and the metaverse. Yeah. And you did it all in about five minutes. Wow. That's that vision. yeah.
2: That's correct. It's fantastic. So let's let's get real sci-fi then to finish out the show, Dean. So mm-hmm. um I want you to put on your your gamer hat and I want you to um, go at 20 or 30 years and, 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 you know, tell us what you think the gaming, um, you know, a gaming experience or gaming will be like, uh, you know, in 20 or 30 years. Well,
0: I, uh, I would give a lot of credit to Matthew Ball for writing the metaverse book. And I think that he gets a lot of things right about like, what should a metaverse be? And, uh, I, I kind of laugh when a lot of people say that, hey, we've already tried the metaverse, right? It, uh, it came, it went, it didn't work, and it was Second Life, right? And uh, uh, Second Second Life didn't have the graphics fidelity or the um, speedy interaction or the real-time nature of, of uh, movement uh, uh, to it uh, that, you would expect to see. And so when, when I hear people say that I say, no, the metaverse hasn't been tried yet. It's, it's one of those things where if you cross over certain uh, technology thresholds, uh, then you, then it becomes possible. And so what I would look forward to is having the equivalent of the Star Trek holodeck where you could instantly just like that, you know, change from one world to another or have a, a world generated uh, that uh, to me looks like reality right i mean i can't tell it apart from a simulation and uh, uh or tell it apart from the real world really and um once Which we could be a once simulation something right? like that it feels like then then we're in a, a
2: a world that could be described as a real metaverse right Fantastic, yeah um, i i mean I, as a as a gamer that has spent the the vast majority of my life in gaming um you know i i do you do look at these technologies and and you're you know as a futurist i'm hungry for this tech you know i'm i'm looking forward for this tech to be able to enhance these uh, gaming experiences you know um just even uh, seeing things like you know as i mentioned um you know Gabe Newell but the half-life uh, alex adaptation adaptation into um you know the the vr space it was pretty decent you know pretty decent effort mm. there it just it showed some real potential for for, for the VR space in terms of gaming that I'm, I'm hugely excited about. But it, 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 it's also um, compute power capabilities, you know, what computers can do. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of rendering graphics and stuff like that, um, you know, if you look at the new Unreal stuff, as you mentioned, it's being used in uh, production for series like The Mandalorian and others. I mean, it's get you know, this stuff is getting indistinguishable from the real world. You know, in in terms of graphics capabilities, it's it's a pretty exciting time to be alive if you're a gamer, frankly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I agree Uh, wholeheartedly. Yeah. So so what what ga- what games do you play Dean in your spare time?
0: Oh uh I I play a lot of shooter games. I I play Call of Duty Warzone uh and Warzone 2. Uh I uh, got into uh playing that because uh, it was the middle of the pandemic and there was nobody to talk to in real life, uh, you know, and and yet, I could get on and uh, uh, get into a, a a quad group with uh, a few friends, and you know we could chat with each other while we were hunting down other other teams in in Warzone too, and Warzone. So, uh, so I think I, we, you know, I play. I spend a lot of time doing that.
2: I play each weekend with my son. He lives in Australia. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm either in the states or in in Thailand, and that's how we hang out on the weekends together. We we play in Roblox mostly, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's uh, it, it it keeps our relationship really strong, actually. So gaming's an important part of uh, mm-hmm. our our uh, our family dynamic, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's a touching note. Let's uh, let's. It's probably time for us to bring the show to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the show. You've given us a more interesting and frankly, a more fun view of the metaverse than several of our other guests. Uh, people you. talk about metaverse for productivity and work, and it just doesn't sound as much fun as the kind of game focused metaverse that you're talking about. Makes that seem more plausible to me as well. Um, how can people find you on the web? Where's the best way to, to find out more about what you're writing and what games you're playing? Uh, I'm uh, Dean Tack on Twitter and uh,
0: gamesbeat.com is where a lot of my stories are as well as venturebeat.com for, for tech stories. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, what I write for. We also uh, do our uh, Gamesbeat Summit events in person uh, every few months. Uh, we've got another one coming up uh, May 22nd and 23rd in uh, Los Angeles.
1: Right on. All right. Well, Dean Takahashi, thank you very kindly for joining us on the Futurist this week. Mm-hmm. I want to thank my business partner and colleague Brett King, who always manages to join no matter where in the world he's globe trotting to mm-hmm. next. Our producer Kevin Hershon and Lisbeth Severins, and the rest of the crew at Provoke Media. These are the folks that make the show possible. We thank you very much. And of course, I want to thank the listeners and subscribers to the program who've been listening and building our building support for the show. I've been getting some great feedback recently from people uh, who've been listening, surprising. I'm getting news from people who are listening closely and they they find some of the comments contentious and they love to get into it. And that's really fun to hear about. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us on socials. Uh, we'd be very happy to hear from you there. Uh, And for everyone who's listening, uh, if you do enjoy the show, please don't forget to help other people find it. Uh, The the audience has been growing quickly, and that's really gratifying. And it's because people like you are sharing it with their friends. They're sharing it. They're reposting it. They're they're giving us five-star reviews on all the podcasting platforms. And that really aids discovery and makes it possible for new people to find the show. We appreciate that very, very much. And of course, every week we'll be back with another person who's exploring, inventing, defining, reinventing the future in their own terms. This is the most fun project and I'm thrilled to share it with you. And Brett, thanks a lot for joining us and making it possible to do this show. Dean, it's always a pleasure no to nice. see you. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks, Brett.
1: And, <laughs> and we Thank will you. see you in the future. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.